Welcome to FRT episode 106. I'm Brad Carr in the suburbs of Washington, joined across town by my colleague Conan French. And today we're going to talk about the regulation of big tech firms in financial services. This has been a big topic this year. While we at the IAF have been writing on this for a couple of years now, we've really seen it emerge as a prominent topic in the official sector throughout 2021. That started really, I think, with BIS General Manager Augustin Carstens and the speech that he gave in January. It's been followed with several reports and speeches through the year. And most recently, with an especially notable BIS bulletin, bulletin number 45, published by the BIS on August 2. Joining us to discuss this are two leading global experts from Deloitte. Michael Tang is a partner at Deloitte Canada and head of Global Financial Services Digital Transformation and Innovation in Toronto. David Strachan is the head of Deloitte's Europe, Middle East and Africa Centre for Regulatory Strategy in London. Michael, of course, is also the lead for our ongoing IIF Deloitte collaboration in our Realising the Digital Promise series, looking at the barriers and success factors as financial institutions undertake their digital transformation journeys. And much of that work has in recent times gravitated to the question of how banks and insurers face into the platformized economy and find their way in an ecosystem in which big tech firms loom large. So Michael, David, welcome and thank you both for joining us on FRT. Thanks, Brad. Thanks very much for inviting us. Michael, I'll start with you if I, if I can and, and talk a little bit about big tech trends in financial services and, uh, and building on some of the work that we've done on the Realising the Digital Promise series and, and obviously your broader engagements with a lot of your client base. Interested in, in what stands out for you, what you've observed, what's happening in the market today in terms of the big tech growth in financial services and this platformized embedded finance world that we're increasingly finding ourselves in? Yeah, I think one of the largest, or I'll say macro observations, is the predominant shift from fintech to big tech. And I think it's important to note that there are differences and you can't lump all the big techs into kind of one cohort. Specifically, the ones in China are, I believe, very different in terms of the ones in North America, per se, of the the big tech that we're used to. Uh, One of the areas is the entry point into financial services is from a very different door. But secondly, especially with the Chinese big tech, they really have their own internal ecosystem. And it's almost self-containing, self-sufficient, whereas the North American big tech that I find is they're really starting to build alliances, partnerships, and establishing an external uh, ecosystem. You take a look at some of the partnerships they've had with some of the banks and insurance companies moving forward. The second major observation I would have is fundamentally the business models of big tech is very different than the business models of banks and insurance companies, given this is a financial services conversation. And what I mean by that is the business models predominantly is driven around data on consumers, being able to use the data to train different models and algorithms to better understand, obviously provide that advanced analytics. And then because of their size and scale of the network effect, it's a very different way to monetize versus a traditional, say, retail bank on net interest margin, transaction fee, service fees. And lastly, you know, because of that, they're able to bundle and unbundle in a very modular way to serve the customer, which is proven quite, uh, I'll say, more challenging for a traditional bank and insurer. And my last observation at a macro level, I would say, is given that there's predominantly only a handful of big tech, there's probably ensuing concentration risk. And at the same time, they can scale so quickly based on my prior observation of business model 
That's probably why the regulators are keeping a watchful eye because they are legitimately impacting billions of people. One particular hyperscaler has nine businesses with over a billion users each in the latest social media, big tech. I think they're closing in on 3 billion active users daily. They're phenomenal numbers, Michael. And like I think you've set the scene for a lot of the themes I want to explore in our conversation, including the emphasis you make in a couple of spaces there on China and the the, the notion of the network effects and how this fits to the economies of scale and economies of scope. Uh, we talked about this a little bit with Professor Doug Arner of the Hong Kong University recently on episode 98, and it's a theme we'll, we'll pick up a little bit further with you and David uh, a little later on. Conan, on this, this notion of the, the big picture trends, the mega themes that we're talking about and what Michael's just described, I just wanted to invite your reaction here. And, and in particular, I know that the, the developments in embedded finance is one that you've, you've certainly had a lot of emphasis on. Yeah, I think that Michael talked through some of the, the aspects there, and I think that's really been the, the key development is that consumers will less and less be reaching for a branded plastic card um, as a sort of focused transaction point. Instead, they'll just be engaging in an activity and doing something and discovering something and engaging in a transaction without thinking about that moment. It's going to keep melting into the background. And Michael pointed out some important differences between um, the U.S. and Chinese model, but there are also some similarities, and that's increasingly that uh, these platforms are the customer-consumer interface. This is where people go um, to find things and discover things, and at the same time, the the cloud environment that they're supporting is the back end. So I think the future of finance, you know, is really um, you know, regulated financial services are being squeezed into the middle of the the back of the transaction there, rather than. Um, sort of driving the front end uh, or really owning the back end uh, anymore in the future. And I think that's a really interesting global phenomenon that's consistent across the markets around the world. The other issue that Michael talked about that's really important is the asymmetrical competition. You know, he talked about the business model differences. And when you have a platform who doesn't want or, or seek fee revenue off of originating a loan or providing some sort of um, supply chain liquidity, um, but instead really just wants stickiness on that platform, that data that they'll learn about their customer, and really just to provide better service uh, of being part of that ecosystem. I think that's a really uh, distinct development that we'll continue to grapple with for quite a long time. Yeah, I think that, that point you make there, Conan, is a, a really vital one. And, and certainly some of the discussions uh, at the IF that we've had with a number of our member firms has, has highlighted this notion of the likes of a big tech firm that is increasingly supporting notions of being able to lend to SME customers, not for any motive of trying to make any sort of interest income, but purely from being able to increase the flow of, of the sale of goods on their platform. And that's a really difficult uh, notion, perhaps, for the banks to find their place with or, or how the banks interact and compete with that. Coming right back to Michael's opening point, that there are fundamentally different business models, fundamentally different business objectives uh, that we're talking about here. Let's pivot a little and, and pick up the, the theme of the, the day about the regulatory responses and what's happening in the global regulatory agenda. Uh, and David, I was wondering uh, if we look at the sequence we've seen this year from the Carsten speech in January, Fernando Restoy, the FSI chairman, the report he did in February, the more recent BIS bulletin. Interested to, to hear what has really stood out for you in this signalling that we've seen from the BIS. And, and I guess one thing to, to perhaps prompt or at the risk of leading the witness, one thing that, that's been a consistent theme through those has been this emphasis on entity-based regulation of the large tech firms rather than a pivot to perhaps a more expanded activity-based approach. Interested in your thoughts on that or, or what else has stood out for you from the, the BIS and others this year? 
Thanks, Brad. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's clearly very timely for the BIS to open up this increasingly important global policy debate and make a loud call for action. Uh, as you said, it's being led from the very top of the BIS and the Financial Stability Institute. And um, I think it's clear that throughout the year, the BIS has become increasingly strident about this issue. I think that's particularly noticeable in the, in the August bulletin. I think although those pronouncements may have kick-started the debate, it's going to take a, a huge amount of effort to understand uh, and respond to the very complex uh, subject of the growing role of big tech and financial services. And I think you've all, in what you've said already, just brought out some of these complexities and subtleties. One very obvious, but I think really important point, uh, and that again comes out crystal clear from the BIS papers, is the policy issues go well beyond central banks and financial services regulators. You know, they span different jurisdictions, different industries and, and policy domains, whether that's financial services, of course, but you've also got very significant interest from competition and data privacy um, regulators. So you mentioned the BIS's call for an entity-based approach. Now, regardless of whether or not uh, that's eventually adopted, I would describe it as a sit-up-and-take-notice intervention. There's been no shortage of discussions on these issues in the past, but I just think that the BIS's intervention will focus minds and may well help crystallise some of these issues more quickly. I mean, for the avoidance of doubt, I'm not saying that it's a foregone conclusion that an entity-based approach uh, is going to win national or international approval. I mean, for one thing, uh, entity-based regulation usually entails an entity supervisor. And when I think about big tech, in in some respects, you're much more knowledgeable about the, the intricacies of the industry than I am. It's not obvious to me that you can identify who that entity supervisor is going to be. You've certainly got a lot of choice, I would say. The other point um, I'd make is that so far, but it's early days yet, that BIS call for action hasn't yet been picked up by the global standard setting bodies. I mean, particularly the Financial Stability Board. Uh, and it seems to me that what um, the FSB does next is going to be a critical um, step. David, you mentioned the the question of you know who and where would manage these entities and and you know these organizations that sort of span the entire economy. You know what's the appropriate body? There was also in the August bulletin you know some observation that a lot of the concerns on concentration and data governance are outside of the traditional central bank scope, um, sort of it's certainly outside of their traditional skill set. But that because these things impinge on the core mission of sound money and smooth payment systems. They really need to upgrade the rules, the capabilities, and, and sort of deal with these issues. How do you see that uh, evolving? So I think they've observed the, the challenge. Um, how do you see the, uh, the solution coming forward? So I think you, I see close to home here in the UK, I see the start of if not a solution, then certainly a response, which is the bringing together in a cross-sectoral way of the um, the financial services regulators, the competition authority, so the competition and markets authority in the UK, and data privacy uh, regulators, uh, along with the relevant government departments, um, which of course you know, typically won't be the finance ministries who would um, often sit around these tables. 
So that's a relatively recent development here, um, and one I expect will actually gain a lot of attention and focus uh, over the rest of the year and, and next year. I would say that's a response at the national level. Big step to replicate that sort of response at the global level, and I think that's really where the, where the challenge is. There are so many parties potentially involved in this debate. Is how do you how do you bring them together, and how do you, how do you make the results manageable? David, amongst some of the the BIS speeches and reports, we've seen references to potential GCF designation uh, of some of the the large tech firms. You made a really important point a moment ago about how an entity-based regulatory approach needs in some form an entity regulator or someone that has the, the scope overseeing that. But with this notion of, of GCV designation as a, a possible direction, you know, interested in thoughts you have, whether this is, is something that we might actually see, whether that's a, a realistic path? So I think the short answer is um, uh, not very quickly and probably not so directly, but that's an issue we could debate. I mean, it's not entirely clear to me that the BIS is arguing for big techs to be designated as GCFIs, but I I accept you could argue that it's implicit in some of the analysis that they do. I mean, one key question, and Conan's touched on that, is, is actually whose system are we talking about? Which system? Um, as we've discussed, the, the issues and the risks go well beyond the financial system. Um, and I think one of the key challenges, if, if policymakers want to go down that route, is building consensus about how you actually describe and define a systemic designation across multiple sectors of the economy. But I think there's one inter- interesting initiative, and there may be others, but here, and that's the the BIS mentioned something called the Digital Markets Act, which the EU, the European Union, is is developing. Now, that is an entity-based initiative and does include a designation approach, uh, and it's also cross-sectoral. Um, and in brief, what the Digital Markets Act seeks to do is to set up a system of rules, obligations, and penalties for what it calls digital gatekeepers. And as I said, gatekeepers can span sectors, in, including financial services. So essentially, there's a, there are three cumulative criteria or tests uh, for designation as a gatekeeper. There's a, a size one, a size that has an impact on the European Union's markets, being in control of an important gateway for business users um, towards end consumers, and expecting to have an entrenched um, position in that particular market or segment. When you compare that with the um, the GCFI designation criteria, then the tests aren't a million miles away from um, size and substitutability. Although what I would say is they're, they're actually seen through a competition lens primarily in this case. So I think that's an example of a cross-sectoral regulation, which um, could certainly, once it's finalized and it hasn't been yet, um, have an impact on big tech's operations in financial services and, and could begin to address some of those BIS issues. But I mean, just to conclude on that, I mean, the broader uh, point that I, I draw from this and indeed any similar cross-sector initiatives goes back to Conan's point is that pressing need for 
much more formal and ongoing collaboration by the various regulators and authorities in this area. David, in, in comparing those approaches of, of a potential GCFE designation approach versus what you see emerging in the EU Digital Markets Act, a really important point you made there that the, the EU approach is, is seen through a, a competition lens. And, and one of the comments we noticed from, I think it was in Fernando Restoy's report in, in February, but I think repeated elsewhere, was this view of competition from a financial regulator's point of view as an important motive, an important policy objective, but probably a, a third objective behind financial stability, the overall protection of markets and, and market integrity. Uh, and I'm wondering whether you know, this is a, an important consideration that, that as you, you table there the EU's approach, you know, the extent to which we need to see, perhaps we firstly need to step back and say what's the actual regulatory objective, what's the actual policy objective and how these intertwine. I agree. I mean, I think um, you have, we'll maybe discuss this later, but I think uh, being very clear about the different um, market failures or, or issues, risks that you're trying to address is, is absolutely essential. I mean, I also think there's a very close relationship between the competition point and the the point that a number of financial services regulators make, particularly when it comes to cloud services providers, about the high degree of concentration in, in that market. So although you know, at, w- at one level, competition may come a third below the other two, I think it's very closely linked into concentration risk and the potential effects from that for financial stability. So they're not so far apart. Well, that's a, a beautiful segue into the, the next question I wanted to pose, actually, which is about this. I kind of wonder at times if it's a conflation, um, that on one hand, you know, we do see big techs increasingly emerging as very large direct providers of financial services directly to end customers. And concurrently, they are also increasingly increasingly critical service providers to the incumbent financial institutions, in particular through the capacity as cloud service providers. Uh, and Conan touched a, a little on this in his, uh, in his comment earlier as well. And, and uh, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering at times whether we are conflating two separate issues or, or whether it's the cumulative scale and the reach of each of these different parts of these different businesses that give rise to the systemic impact. Maybe, Michael, yeah, I know that the hyperscalers, the cloud service providers is a, a big area you focus on. Perhaps if, if you wanted to jump in with any reaction to this and then, uh, and then following that, David. Yeah, let me just address that first question. I think they are two separate issues, but they're obviously interrelated, getting back to the fundamental business model of some of these, whether they're cloud service providers or hyperscalers. They're monetizing data as part of their business model. That allows them to naturally go into financial services for their customers. But I also wanted to touch on the point that David uh, mentioned that the policy issues are way beyond central banks. And I want to bring up a theme that we've been seeing through um, our conversations and, and workshops around the blurring of lines. We brought up the blurring of sectorial boundaries even within financial services and not to go off on a tangent, but the blurring of even industry regulator lines as we move towards an open data economy. And the blurring of the lines are not just between the financial regulators. David also mentioned the competition um, authorities as well as data privacy regulators. And I think the exam question moving forward, whether it's entity-based or activity-based, is really how are these different regulators going to coordinate this? 
and not just at a national level, but obviously these are getting on global stages as transactions, payments, you know, financial services are almost, you know, national boundaries. Electronic payments are just going to increase in volume. So I think it's going to be really tough to separate those two different issues, whether you're just providing fundamental infrastructure, cloud services as it leaks into data, AI, transactions. So it goes back into that whole ecosystem business model that's going to be very difficult to unbundle and separate. Therefore, I think um, much more coordination between the regulators around that blurring of industry boundaries are going to come place. David, did you want to add beyond Michael's comments? I, I mean, just very briefly, I think Michael sums it up very well. I mean, I would say that at the moment, there is a bit of conflation of the rules, and um, you do need to disaggregate them, look at individual businesses and individual business lines, because in the right response, the right framework for dealing with one doesn't necessarily translate into the right framework for dealing with another. The real challenge is just um, bringing all the component parts of the response together in a, a coherent way, in a, in a coherent framework. And I think if you, just on a very simplistic basis, if you look uh, at the big tech's role in financial services, I mean, there are at least three. They're direct participants and therefore competitors to the incumbents. They're critical service providers. And they're also business partners. And it's, it's actually quite infrequent that you find a, an entity or a group of entities that occupy simultaneously those um, three roles. And I think when the policymakers come to think about how they want to respond, it's really a, a very nuanced response tailored to the different roles that these organizations are, are, are playing. Uh, indeed, and, and maybe keeping that thought in mind, maybe we'll we'll extend our discussion a little here from we started looking at what's coming from the BIS and what's happening perhaps as a, a global direction or a global framework, but maybe we'll we'll look now at some of the other policy responses we're seeing in, in particular leading markets around the world. There's a lot that's been happening in China. We've seen some more recent signals around uh, extensions of different controls on the activities of tech firms and those data business models built uh, beyond what we saw earlier with the, uh, the response to the anti-IPO. We've seen the US executive order on competition, which we talked about on, on episode 102. There's things happening in the EU. Conan, perhaps could you give us a, a quick overview of what has stood out for you amongst these various national or regional responses uh, that we've seen in recent times? Well, I think China just continues to uh, move in a very concerted and consistent direction to try and rein in um, the tech giants that had grown so quickly in their market, you know, control 94% of all mobile payments and, you know, really are the, they're called total digital lifestyle apps and that, if anything, underestimates sort of the role that they play in society. And so we've seen a number of moves this year, as you mentioned, and then uh, recently in the past couple of weeks, the state market regulator has come out. Um, with new draft regulations that would focus on the control of data, unfair competition um, by the, the hyperscale tech platforms, and a real focus on user privacy, um, which may surprise some, but it would be some of the, the strictest constraints on um, the use of personal data by commercial tech entities. Important to note, you know, in a society, whereas in Europe you have a uh, presumption of privacy as a, as a right, 
I think for enforcement and, and uh, government purposes, there isn't the same presumption. Uh, but these uh, rules would, for instance, forbid the use of algorithms and determining uh, user preferences on some things. And that might even impinge on, on what the consumers want uh, in that market, but it would be um, one of the stronger frameworks um, to come forward uh, on the control uh, and use of data across the economy. And that's also sort of a consistent, it's not a direct theme, but an underlying theme of the U.S. executive order, which was really focused on the power that uh, hyperscale tech platforms have in the use of consumer data and trying to open up uh, more competition and less concentration um, sort of in those areas. Ironically, the U.S. executive order at the same time sort of pushed forward open banking uh, provisions without really giving some thought to who's best positioned to make use of that opened up uh, banking data, uh, which would ironically be the tech platforms that in you know, a chapter or two ahead of that, they'd uh, articulated all of the concerns. So sort of a, a bit of a mixed bag on that front in the U.S. executive order. So those are the things that uh, stood out for me in, in China and in um, the U.S. And David, turning to you first, I was curious your view of, of the, the global context and this global tech lash that continues to move through the markets. Thanks. Uh, uh, my gaze has been, in the last month or so, has been quite close to home because uh, in July, the Bank of England's Financial Policy Committee um, announced that it had decided that additional policy measures were needed to deal with the financial stability risks associated with cloud services providers and indeed other critical third parties, um, particularly in the technology area, and that it was exploring with the other UK authorities the, the case for um, additional powers and legislation here. So we don't know an awful lot about what the United Kingdom or what the Bank of England is intending, but the it's pretty clear that the Financial Policy Committee is thinking along the lines of having some form of resilience standards, CSBs and critical uh, technology providers, and uh, also um, some form of uh, resilience testing, uh, building on existing UK testing frameworks. Um, there are a couple of those. But at the same time, being very clear that it's going to focus on services provided to UK financial institutions. How distinguishable those services are um, from those provided to any financial institution is is not is not so, so, so clear to me. So I think you know it's possible that that takes the um, the United Kingdom down a road that is um, currently being taken by the European Union again, um, something called the Digital Operation Resilience Act, where um, that extends to creating a, an oversight framework for critical ICT providers. Um, so I think, you know, possibly very early days, but you see, you might see the beginnings of a, a trend there, which is regulators sort of reaching in and, and taking a, a stronger direct oversight role through some of the um, critical third party providers. And Michael, I think that we have seen that as a, as a consistent trend in, in the UK and, and Europe. We see the US sort of observing the issue, but not necessarily signaling anything yet. Um, and then the, the developments that I mentioned in China, as you look at that global map, um, what, what stands out for you? Yeah, like if I compare what's happening in China to say the EU, in China it's quite interesting. I mean, they're obviously trying to balance a level of foreign investment 
um, so they can fund the capital as well as innovation. But it seems like they're not going to compromise stability, whether it's financial stability, market stability, operation resilience. And at the risk of trying to find a pattern in this, because you see this in online education, uh, healthcare, you know, you see these scale growth startups. They watch somewhat patiently. Um, they enjoy success and they almost like they wait for it to get messy or they have a misstep and something around antitrust happens and then they just clamp down. And it's almost like this pattern. Whereas, say, in the EU, um, it's a little differently. I mean, they started with the PSD2, which encouraged banks to share their data uh, and, and, and regulate that with fintechs and big techs that we discussed. But at the same time, on GDPR, it doesn't seem like it's going the other way where big techs don't need to share with the banks. So there's a little bit of contradiction. And I think what's going to be interesting to watch is whether our conversations and listening, as these big tech firms are getting, quote, too big, particularly in North America, they talk about breaking them up because they're becoming either concentration risk or too powerful. But what if they took a similar tack to some of the big banks where it's they actually have to open up big techs? And the big techs have to share the consumer data with the banks or with other big techs, because if it's in the truest spirit of both innovation and consumer protection, like that's a very different conversation asking almost open banking or open big tech to share data the other way. And, you know, I don't see or hear a lot of the regulators thinking that way if they're going to treat them like big banks. Michael, that I think alludes to... You know, one of the suspicions I've had that, that while some have tried to talk about the revolution of decentralised finance, um, I actually see more of a risk of actual increased centralisation um, around these firms and the, the asymmetries uh, in those data sharing regimes like open banking is a, a really critical part of that. Um, I was wondering if I could perhaps table a couple of my hypotheses and invite uh, reactions. Firstly, Michael, you know, looking at what emerged with the Ant uh, IPO, uh, the failed IPO of late last year, or the aborted IPO, one of the disclosures that Ant revealed was that 98% of the funding for their SME loans was coming from the state-owned banks in China. And so my hypothesis of, of where that prompted such a, a dramatic regulatory reaction was in part that perhaps Ant was taking too much of the margin away from the state-owned banks. Um, and being state-owned, needless to say, they had considerable political clout. So the government had a financial interest to act. Now, we talk a lot in, in other parts of the world with the emergence of the platformized economy that a lot of banks staring into that, trying to find their own place in the platformized world, may become product providers on other people's platforms, may become the balance sheet funders of loans that are originated by the platform. But of course, in those cases, it's going to be private sector banks, not state-owned ones. And I don't know that there would be the same level of political sympathy for one group of private shareholders taking the margin away from another group. But interested in, in your thoughts, whether I'm drawing too long a bow or, or whether this is uh, from China perhaps a, an indicator of what we might expect to see emerge in other markets? Yeah, I mean, I personally can't read the minds of the Chinese government per se. So it, it maybe lands somewhere between, you know, um, Mr. Ma and trying to make a point in terms of what, was, uh, what he shared. But I also think maybe it's a way to balance some of the, the margins and returns on the state-owned banks. Even though they're funding a lot of this, um, 
Ant Financial was making a lot of the, the actual margins. But I got to believe there's needs to be some balance of foreign investment to keep these afloat as well. But I still believe the long-term view of China and the regulators is around stability over innovation and uh, competition. It's a, it's a really important point also, and, and probably in some ways consistent with the signals that we've seen uh, out of Baal and elsewhere too. And the other hypothesis perhaps, or, or my attempt at a bit of crystal balling, you know, I, I guess I observe two of the major policy trends we see, certainly in emerging markets, but also elsewhere. Is, is firstly the concern about big tech concentrated power that we've discussed at length here. And then secondly, the issue of, of digital sovereignty, uh, which Michael, I think you alluded to uh, earlier in, in this discussion as well. And whether that's couched in terms of data protection or in terms of national security, but different notions of, of wanting to be able to in some way protect whether it's local industry or local data or, or what. And I kind of see these perhaps uh, these trends perhaps colliding in a way where the fear of big tech perhaps becomes another reason or another excuse for some markets to put up protectionist barriers, whether they be data localization restrictions or other forms of, of barriers. And just wanted to perhaps, you know, firstly, David, and then Michael, any reactions you have around, you know, whether this, this is a, a legitimate issue or a legitimate threat that the, the big tech concentration concerns may adversely spur further restrictive or protectionist um, activity that, that impairs cross-border commerce? So if I kick off, um, I think there's, there's certainly evidence, and I think we'll see more um, demand, regulatory demand for uh, localization. Um, but, and I suppose by that, I mean increasing requirements for uh, big techs to have subsidiaries in different jurisdictions with their own governance or uh, risk management and probably a degree of operational independence. And I, I think that follows from what we were discussing earlier, which is if you are going to take on a more direct oversight role, then you need something to which you can attach that oversight. So I think that's localization. Um, on the data localization, I, um, I know, Brad, that you and your IIF colleagues sort of uh, care very deeply about that, particularly given the um, negative impact that it can have on innovation, on growth and efficiency. I mean, I think the concerns that you have will definitely resonate with policymakers whose mandates include those things, fostering innovation and economic growth. But clearly, there are other authorities uh, responsible for data protection, data ethics, who will push for uh, more localization and more local control. I mean, there's you know, one, I think, interesting and potentially bright spot um, is the, the fact that the UK's data protection regulator, um, the Information Commissioner's Office, has talked about and advocated new arrangements to try and find a way through these different dynamics. And uh, they've suggested that we, what we need is a new Bretton Woods for data. Um, and that, you know, along the lines of a global accord that's setting out some minimum standards and protections for uh, data around the world in an effort to um, offer a sort of strong reassurance to all the different stakeholders and, and through that facilitate um, global data flows. Now, I've no doubt that's an ambitious goal, but I mean, I think it is, I think it's really interesting that there's a data protection authority that is advocating that sort of approach. Just going to share a couple of points. I think um, 
the protectionism or nationalism is already happening. I don't think it needs to be a hypothesis per se, whether the Chinese are building their own tech. We all know about the TikTok scenario in the US and Facebook and Google somewhat banned in China and haven't heard about Huawei in a little while. But I think it's already happening. And the challenge is trying to protect these sovereign or, or, or natural borders, like physical borders in this digital world. Because as we heard in some of our workshops, transactions and digital transactions are going to happen. So it's less about data residency and data jurisdiction in terms of where data physically resides in data pools. And it's more about data security and cyber and access. And I think that conversation is going to shift because it's going to be, I think, difficult to just make sure data only sits in a physical place, which is really what cloud's trying to counter. The the digital Bretton Woods point that David makes is a, a really important one and, and one that we at the IF have, have focused heavily on uh, and have a project running on at the moment. Uh, and I think we need to think of this at two levels, really, in that on one hand, there is perhaps the the big picture idyllic solution that we're able to have a a multilateral scheme around the world that is is supportive of cross-border digital flows. At the same time, you know, we probably need to be realistic in the current political climate and know that uh, some of the progress that can be made might more likely be in a bilateral setting or it might be in regionalised clubs or, or clubs of, of countries that are like-minded. So I think we, we need to be thinking of this at both levels. But certainly the increased focus, uh, and I think in particular where, to a point, another point David made earlier, this extends beyond the remit of financial regulators, but it's one where financial regulators probably have the best record of cooperation and cohesion around the world, and hopefully it's one that they can champion. So, uh, Michael, we've been talking a lot here about the policy landscape and what's going on around the world, um, but was wondering if you might uh, share with us a, a couple of thoughts on, you know, s- a strategic view for, for banks, you know, as they think about these um, developments in markets around the world, how will they find their place in this increasingly platformized world? Yeah, thanks, Connor. I wish I had the crystal ball, but, <laughs> but, but I think we've been really discussing the notion of ecosystems and figuring out that assuming the best talent and capabilities do not reside in your organization, you're going to need some type of strategy to build alliances and partner. So this sets up very nicely for a co-opetition type of scenario. And I also think it's important as a bank strategy to really unpack and decouple what you actually want in that ecosystem from these big techs. Because in three big lenses, they're either just pure infrastructure vendor providers. Secondly, you really align and partner with them for data. And third, beyond how they scaled and the talent they have, really partner with them from innovation. And when I look at that, the infrastructure, commoditization, the peer cloud services, I think that's quite mature. And I would I don't have the stats in front of me, but I have to imagine greater than 75% of all the banks are using some type of cloud services as an infrastructure. What's really up for debate and interesting is the second area around data. How organizations and banks as part of their strategy start combining both the proprietary data and the syndicated data that they can partner with some of these big techs, because as we discussed before, they have so much of it as well as the analytics, the AI, and the insights that could really help banking and, more importantly, the bank's customers 
And third, which I'm seeing some of these quote mega deals is they're partnering on innovation. So this allows these financial institutions to realistically change their culture, learn faster, bring in different types of mindsets in terms of innovations to transform not only from a business perspective, but their operating models, their talent base and the whole bit. So I think part of the strategy here is, you know, you can't live them, you can't live without them. I think it'd be very strategic to figure out how you actually live in a world with the big techs, but give yourself an, uh, the optionality to pivot where you need to. But I think the biggest advantage is to learn from the big techs. Maybe, Michael, if I could ask one final follow-up question off that, and, and you know, I think you're absolutely right that it is the reality that we're staring into and in line with those three different roles that the big techs play with, with firms that we discussed earlier, finding your way and finding your space. Former Itao CEO Kenji Dobrasha uh, spoke in one of our conferences about a year ago about the, the skill set required in the way that you engage with third parties. Uh, and he described how at Itao they'd face this, this question of you know, defend or duck or, or focus on distribution or, or product and that they were wanting to be the platform themselves but invite therefore others to sell product on the Itao platform to our Itao customers. And he made the observation that, that it just meant they needed to have a whole new skill set in terms of how they engage with third parties beyond what they'd ever had to do before. And just interested in any thoughts or reflections you have on, on that point, Michael, in terms of how firms are positioning themselves in skills and in terms of the risk management structures facing into those, uh, those partnerships, those interactions with the tech firms. Yeah, I think um, at a macro level, the definition of the platform model, I mean, there's only going to be a handful of them. By definition, you can't have a ton of them. So I think it, it makes the bank really make some tough decisions on what business model they want to enter. Are they truly going to be product manufacturers? Are they going to own particular market segments? Are they truly going to be consumer and customer advisors where they don't manufacture anything and they provide the platform for, for different areas? So I think there's lots to learn from the big tech in terms of how, and there's only going to be a certain number of universal banks that can actually do that. In terms of modernizing their operating model, the skill sets that these organizations and banks are going to need to employ are going to be more around building alliances and partnerships that go full on in, a, in an ecosystem platform business model. And I don't see a lot of that right now. Many of the, the banks are still trying to figure out internally. But if anything at all coming out of this pandemic, I think it's really given organizations uh, two things. Number one, new permission to really think differently and modernize and digitize to really fundamentally transform. And secondly, many organizations have proven to themselves that they can actually move at the velocity and scale of big techs if they really focus on something. So it'll be really interesting in the next two, three years if they really capitalize and really transform or do they snap back into the old ways of uh, operating. Well, thank you, Michael. I think that really alludes, you know, through the through the full extent of this discussion, the big tech world uh, that's looming or that's already upon us is is such a, a dramatic one, in which both regulators and FIs themselves are both still finding their way uh, and still understanding the repercussions and how they best react and position into that. I'm going to attempt to quickly recap on some of the the key themes we've discussed. From the outset, Michael made the point that the big techs are not all the same and that we need to be careful uh, in lumping them all together, which we've probably been guilty of at times in this discussion. But we do need to be conscious of their respective differences 
And particularly, as Michael had said, with uh, the case, if you look in China, where a lot of the firms there have really managed to build their own internal ecosystems. We need to be conscious of the the fundamental differences in the business models between the big techs and those of uh, the business models of the banks. Um, Thinking of, uh, for instance, the different objectives around whether it's for the purpose of generating interest income in lending or whether it's about increasing flow into other parts of the business, uh, broadly how those uh, other networks extend and connect. David made the point that a lot of the issues from a regulatory perspective that we're talking about go well beyond the scope of central banks and financial regulators. There's a lot of other issues associated with data. David also made the point that there is still much, much more to do, uh, and really that the activity we've seen this year in some of the speeches and reports and papers out of the BIS in particular has had the effect perhaps of heralding a call to action. But it is also at the same time, I think, a notion that financial regulators need to work with other sectors and perhaps be a champion to other sectors where the international cooperation that the financial regulators have achieved, particularly since the last crisis, is perhaps a template that can be used broadly by, by others. That was a really interesting point David made also around entity-based regulation, emphasising that you need to have an entity regulator, but also contrasting the notion of what a GCFE construct might look like versus those that we're seeing emerging from the EU Digital Markets Act. And that led us, uh, I think, each of us to talk a bit about the different lenses and the, the primary two that we hear talked about from Baal in terms of consumer protection and financial stability versus competition, the, uh, the weighing of those different objectives, the interplay of those different objectives. A couple more points I'd like to reiterate. Conan highlighted the, the open banking uh, asymmetries and how this came through perhaps as a bit of a contradiction in the United States executive order recently, and where it is potentially the big tech firms that can be the greatest beneficiaries of data sharing frameworks. We talked a bit about cloud and about the uh, expectations for cloud service providers. It was a really interesting insight I thought that David shared about the, the Bank of England Financial Policy Committee and their discussions around the additional measures that might be in the form of resilience testing. And where David fitted this as part of the, the trend of regulators increasingly perhaps reaching in or looking at where they may take an increasing role in oversight of the CSPs. This reminds me a lot of the FSB workshop in February, and that was under the Chatham House rule, so I won't attribute, but there was, uh, I think, a a key theme in that workshop, views expressed from several from across different types of firms and different agencies supporting a shift towards some form of direct supervision of the CSPs. And lastly, I want to bring it back a bit to the the three roles of big techs that we've discussed, that in in some forms, from the perspective of a a financial institution, they are a competitor. They're also increasingly critical suppliers, and they are also partners on various ventures and initiatives. It is, as was put, a a very unique trilogy, perhaps, of of those different roles. Uh, And that does make it a very complex one in facing into and understanding what this means in the broader dynamic. It is also, as Michael concluded, that the big techs can play a very important role in helping banks to transform themselves and to transform their cultures, which is another theme that has come through in our Realising the Digital Promise series. So there's a lot there. I, I don't know that I've managed to capture everything, but hopefully I've caught a few of the many, I think, very interesting themes that we've discussed here. Michael, David, really grateful to have you join us here on FRT. Thanks for being part of the discussion. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Connor. Thanks, both. It was really interesting. And lastly, I just want to foreshadow a couple of our upcoming episodes. Uh, We're going to look at a great recent research paper by our IIF colleague, Ben Hilgenstock, on sub-Saharan mobile payments. And for that, we're going to be joined by Brad Gillis of Standard Bank and Megan Brown of First Rand. Continuing with the African theme, I'm also going to speak with Hisham Ezzal-Arab, the former chairman of CIB Egypt, looking at innovation across the continent. 
And we're going to look at Starling Trust's recent annual compendium, which has a focus on ways to innovate for better conduct. And we'll do that together with the Monetary Authority of Singapore. So please stay safe and join us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on FRT.